Meet the Aquanics is now sponsored by Audible.com. As part of this sponsorship, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a 30-day trial so you can check out the range of titles that they're offering. Currently, Audible has over 180,000 books to choose from for either your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. To help support this podcast, please go to www.audibletrial.com slash And now, on with our next episode. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, thanks again uh, for joining us for another one of these podcasts. Uh, this one's live, obviously. This one's not offline. Um, luckily, today, uh, I'm joined by Professor Tom Stace from the University of Queensland and the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems. So, Tom, thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. It's good to be here. So, I thought we'd start uh, this discussion off with a, a much sort of a, a broader perspective of, of specifically EQUIS, the centre that you work for, mm-hmm. and the kind of work that EQUIS does, and how this sort of fits in um, more globally with this this idea of quantum technology, because EQUIS uh, is not mandated to look exclusively at quantum computing, but rather quantum technology in general. So can you give us a bit of a rundown of, of how that works in sort of the, the, the pie-in-the-sky kind of look? Sure. So. So quantum mechanics has been of interest uh, to scientists for a hundred years or more, um, and uh, for for a long time, probably the first half of the life of quantum mechanics, it's been seen something as as a curiosity or as a source of noise, a source of of problems. Um, and I guess we've been realizing over the last twenty or thirty or forty years that that there is there are things that quantum mechanics lets you do in a in a positive sense that you can't do uh, with uh, just a classical model of, of the universe and and as you as you sort of alluded to quantum computing is one area that um that that's that's true there are there are certain tasks in quantum computing that, that you can solve more efficiently uh, than you can do with a classical computer but but that's not the the end of the story. There are a lot of other other questions and, and problems that potentially we can solve uh, in in the world with um, with uh, quantum technologies that aren't digital computers in the sense of a, a pre-programmable um, gate model of, of computation, mm-hmm. but that nevertheless you can you can exploit quantum mechanics to your advantage. So one of the uh, sort of staple uh, examples of that is. Um, measurement. So measurement is always affected by noise. So classically or quantum mechanically, there's there's always noise in in measuring some some object, some thing that you're interested in. And so metrology, which is the study of measurement, really is in in a sense a, a study of noise. It's a question of it's asking the question: How do we measure things and minimise noise? Now, quantum mechanics imposes a, a minimum amount of noise. There's randomness in all quantum systems but it turns out you can use the power of quantum mechanics to circumvent uh, some of that noise to mitigate some of that noise and there's a there's a great example of where people are working very hard and, and one of the the first places that people have thought to deploy such a uh, quantum measurement scheme is in LIGO so the uh, large gravitational interferometer that uh, recently discovered gravity waves the the, that that system is a very powerful laser that's circulating in gigantic uh, four kilometer long vacuum tubes so it's a massive piece of machinery mm-hmm. but at, at, at its heart it's measuring photons it's measuring light and those photons have noise associated with them because they're quantum mechanical particles 
and trying to make measurements of these gigantic uh, interferometer, interferometric arms to detect gravity waves really is just a question of how low can you push noise. And, and that noise can come from fundamental uh, uh, sources like quantum mechanics. And it can also come from um, more prosaic things like trucks driving past, they shake the mirrors. But either which way, uh, it's really a, the, the problem that that, that experiment is solving is, is how do we engineer noise to be as, as small as possible. And one of the tricks that, uh, that's been developed for LIGO is, uh, is how, do you, how you use quantum mechanical uh, effects, that is unusual states of light that aren't just uh, the, the analog of, of classical light sources, uh, aren't just the analog of, of lasers and light globes, how can you engineer new sources of light that are really fundamentally quantum mechanical that do a lot better at, uh, at measuring, uh, measuring lengths in that case? Now, it turns out that the, 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 the well-heralded LIGO experiment from a year ago or thereabouts uh, did not, in fact, have uh, a quantum mechanical light source uh, implemented at the time. So, uh, so we can't really claim that uh, quantum mechanics was, was at the heart of that particular ex that experimental run. However, it's a, it is the case that, that that system is going to be upgraded with a new so-called squeezed source of light. So that's a, a long-winded way of saying that, um, that quantum mechanics, of course, helps you to do some things in, in quantum computing, but it also helps to do uh, solve, solve real-world problems uh, and scientific problems that are really uh, questions of noise and how do you minimise noise in measurement. So quantum metrology is one of the... Um, areas that, that EQUIS is, is really interested in. How do you use quantum mechanics, quantum mechanical principles to, to do measurements better and faster? So, I mean, give us, give us sort of a, a, you know, a 30 second or a 45 second sort of rundown on this term engineered quantum systems. Sure, so, so again, the, the history of quantum mechanics has been a, a, a one of physics, like how to, a, answering questions that are of interest, scientific interest to, to physicists, but it's really a, a study of noise in one sense and so that noise is a, is a problem that affects all of engineering and particularly if you think about control theory that's that's really a, a study of how you control complicated systems that are, are perturbed by noise and and so engineered quantum systems is really the extension of that that idea to the quantum domain that is how do you design apparatus that that perform useful functions in the world um, like measurement uh, that uh, that that really circumvent the constraints that that classical sources of of, uh, of classical metrology schemes um, really suffer from. So so engineering really is a question of of minimising noise and uh, and designing things that uh, that work even in spite of real world constraints like like quantum noise, quantum randomness. So I mean, in the context of, of of this kind of thing, of sort of noise and sort of measurement, uh, you've already talked a little bit about optics, about uh, how, in the case of LIGO, these kind of engineered light sources uh, can help us out with these kind of experiments. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, this kind of ties in nicely with, with the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago with Jake Taylor, Taylor, who, who talked a little bit about um, these what are called optomechanical systems, so these quantum mechanical vibrating things. Mm -hmm about that in the context of, of, of transducers and uh, other kinds of, of devices that uh, either sort of convert signals from one to the other or, as you say, measure things. 
Um, so this stuff is, is not just based on light and not just based on optics. There's a whole swath of systems that we can start looking at with this, isn't there? Indeed, there, there sure is. Um, I mean, I guess I mentioned light because that was the, the, in many ways, the starting point for people thinking about about all of this sort of stuff. Uh, there's, you know, as, as I as I just said, one sense in which you can understand engineered the engineered in 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 our title of engineered quantum systems is understanding sort of control theory and how noise affects uh, engineered control systems in in fighter jets and so on. There's another another. Uh, sense in which we use en engineering in our title and that relates um, to uh, to the notion of simulation so um, in before digital computers existed if you wanted to solve a, a complicated series of, of differential equations then then one of the ways to do that was to build a system that a mechanical system an engineered system that replicated the the dynamics that you cared to, to think about so so in fact, this is in the early days of, of economics when people were starting to build mathematical models of economics before digital computers were commonly available. And, and in fact, what people, what, what economists did, or some economists did, was to build uh, fluid mechanical systems, that is pipes and chambers and pumps, representing parts of an economy. So that they were, they were trying to build simulators out of, out of water that was simulating the processes that they believed occurred in, in a real economy. And, and that's, that's an approach that's been, been uh, profitable in, in different branches of science. How do you solve the mathematical problems of your, whichever discipline you're in using a, a simulator that is a, a physical apparatus that, that to your knowledge, uh, replicates the behavior of the thing that you're, you're trying to study. And so that's, that's one, of the, um, one of the other areas that we're interested in is, is engineering novel systems in, in, uh, in very specialized hardware that are capable of, of solving problems in a sense that's not the same as what a digital computer is doing. They're, they're, they're in a sense replicating the, the dynamics and the behavior of the thing that we were interested in um, using a, an engineered system. So an example of that would be a long-standing question in theoretical physics and, and in, well, in applied physics, which is about high temp temperature superconductivity. So that's a, mm -hmm. a phenomenon that's been known about for 30 years. Um, Nobel Prize have been awarded for the discovery of it. So just to clarify for people, high temperature in the common sense in, in this language still means cold, just not as That's cold. right. Yeah. So, so it, it, was, it was, took, took uh, many decades. Well, when, when superconductivity was uh, first discovered when people were, were messing around with liquid helium and, uh, and high temperature re really referred to the ability to, to observe superconductivity above liquid nitrogen. So it is still indeed very cold. Liquid nitrogen happens to be much cheaper than liquid helium. So, if you could, uh, if people are interested in it for all sorts of reasons, but the, the the hope or the promise, as it was twenty or thirty years ago, was that maybe we build all our power cables out of uh, at a very high temperature superconductivity, that is at room temperature or ambient temperature, so that we can carry electricity around the around the country or around the world, even with zero losses. So that that was a, a sort of a, a pie in the sky dream. The thing is, we still don't actually understand the mechanism for high temperature superconductivity. And it's believed that quantum fluctuations are really important in, the, the, in understanding that phenomena. Um, and so, so people have a, a belief uh, that, that various models in quantum mechanics, theoretical models in quantum mechanics, have built into them the, the mechanism of high temperature superconductivity. It's just that 
nobody's been able to uh, demonstrate that in a convincing way. So we, there's, there's, there's statements of belief about uh, where the physics of high-temperature superconductivity comes from, but we just don't, don't know uh, that, that those claims are true or not. Now, <laughs> the, the problem there is that we can't simulate those, those quantum mechanical models on a digital computer with enough uh, accuracy in, in a reasonable amount of time. And so one, one approach to that problem would be to say, let's build in a, in a real physical system that's completely different from the, the, the physical uh, ingredients that are in, in real high-temperature superconductors. Let's build in this engineered system the kinds of uh, microscopic details that we think live in this, this theoretical model called the Hubbard model. And so, so for example, you spoke to Mike Beerchuk who, who builds uh, ion traps and, uh, and so you can imagine taking a string of ions in an ion trap or a 2D array of ions in an ion trap and simulating this so-called Hubbard model, that's the, the model that people believe contains high-temperature superconductivity, simulating that in the ions of the ion trap and measuring then properties of, the, of, the, of that physical system and, and, and discovering whether or not super, that, that has the, the correct behaviour to understand high-temperature superconductivity. Or perhaps out of uh, superconductor, I mean, this is sort of uh, slightly ironic, using low temperature superconductors, niobium or aluminium, in, uh, in the kinds of experiments that people build for, uh, for digital quantum computers, using the same sorts of underlying hardware to simulate a Hubbard model that would then, um, in the same way, perhaps let you understand whether superconduct high temperature superconductivity emerges from this particular model so that's a little bit ironic because you're using mm -hmm. low temperature superconductivity to, to simulate a model which you hope explains high temperature superconductivity um and well, so I mean, boots, bootstrapping is not a big problem no that's right but so so the, the point there is that you've really got a you've fabricated an entirely synthetic system that has nothing uh, to do with the 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 problem that you're trying to solve, except that you believe that it replicates the model that you you hope uh, contains the physics that you're interested in, and and just like you know the the analogy with uh, economics, building a fluid mechanical uh, system with pumps and pipes and reservoirs has nothing to do with the real economy, except that you the people who are doing it believe that the mathematics underpinned the two systems, the economic system and the fluid mechanical system, were were somehow related to one another. So that's one of the other aspects that, um, of, of uh, quantum mechanics that we're interested in in our centre is how you simulate um, exotic systems in very, very well-controlled, uh, engineered devices. So, I mean, there's an interesting sort of economical question on this uh, kind of thing in uh, when you're simulating specific systems rather than, say, a full digital machine. Um, sort of return on investment is sort of, these systems are hard to build. These things cost a lot of money to build. I mean, in the context of high temperature superconductivity, I can imagine that there is a potential return on investment if you could build something that tells us, you know, how the high temperature superconductors work. Um, but how do you see this fitting in sort of with other such problems? Are they, they very practically related? Do they have a good motivation for building these things, or a lot of them just sort of esoteric scientific problems that, you know, help us understand things but don't have any immediate application? Well, I mean, I'd say a lot of people in the field are interested in it for, uh, for, for really just for curiosity. I mean, that's, that's what drives academics. But, you know, the history of, of, of science is that uh, curiosity-driven research often does lead to uh, 
really big economic impact. But having said that, I mean, just that that example of high temperature superconductivity. If we if we were able to deploy uh, quantum mechanics in the service of understanding that problem in the way that I described, building simulators, then um, then that by itself is a big. Uh, there's potentially massive payoffs in um, in. Uh, electricity uh, uh, distribution, power distribution, and also in transportation. So building um, levitating trains using high-temperature su superconductors would revolutionise uh, transport. Now, those the, the payoff in those cases would be measured in the, the billions or tens or hundreds of billions of dollars, um, and the investment required is measured in the in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. So you know the 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 return on investment, if it works, is is absolutely uh, phenomenal, right? So it only has to that kind of a venture only has to work one every a hundred or a thousand times that, mm -hmm. uh, that you've made your money back. Now, in fact, we also know of other of other uh, systems where a simulator would be very valuable, and um, not just high temperature superconductivity, but uh, developing new drugs, new chemicals for for all sorts of different applications is a, is a is a really hard problem. And at the moment, the, the the standard approach is is really to manufacture new compounds, whether you get them from uh, from the Amazon rainforest or out of a out of a lab, to to synthesise and, and purify various compounds that you believe might have some some advantage in solve in, in curing this this or that disease or synthesising new catalysts for this or that uh, industrial process. But it's it's a it's very much a, a case of of going out and looking for needles in haystacks. And we don't really have a, a, we've got lots of rules of thumb and chemists for the last two or 300 years have, have figured out how to understand chemistry in a, in a way that, that does help them to make progress. But there's, there's no rational way of, of really understanding the quantum mechanics that's, that's at the heart of every single molecule in a, in a completely rational and controlled way. So, so if you had a, a, a quantum simulator, the hope would also be that you could simulate, for example, uh, uh, chemical uh, chemical processes. So maybe we can design new uh, new catalysts that help us to to make fertilizers more efficiently. Perhaps we can we can uh, simulate compounds that we we believe might help to to solve different diseases that we we care about. So, so this is a distinction that I think some people uh, still find a little bit confusing when when we talk about things like drug synthesis and drug uh, drug manufacturing. Are you saying that a quantum computer can help us? You know, say we have a problem, um, whether it's a, a catalytic problem or a medical problem, does quantum simulation allow us to figure out what kind of molecule we would need to synthesize to do it? Or does it allow us to sort of, you know, what comes first? Do we start with the molecule and then simulate it? Or do we start with the problem and then find the molecule? I, I, I mean, I, so I'm not, not a, a, a chemist, so, you know, I don't want to, to uh, speak too much about what what those guys do at the moment, but my understanding is that that really they they find molecules and then they see if they work on a specific problem. So, um, <laughs> but but in the end, a, a molecule is just a, an atomic scale machine. So the the world of nanotechnology already exists and it's existed for hundreds of years because chemists are, are synthesizing nanometer scale atomic machines. That's that's just another name for molecules. And so the the question is, you know, in 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 conventional engineering, mechanical engineering, you, let's say you've got a problem which is I want to get from here to there. Well, there's lots of ways to solve that. You could hop on a horse, you could walk, or you could invent a bicycle or a car. And you know that the latter two solutions are, 
know, statements about a machine that helps you to solve a particular problem. But you know, you have to first identify the the nature of the problem. So I guess in in drug design, you have to identify chemical pathways, biochemical pathways that are relevant to the the specific disease that you're you're concerned with, and then come up with potential interventions, molecular interventions that will will uh, rectify whatever that problem is. And so it's it's then the question is: Are there molecules? Are there are there atomic machines that will do the task that's required to disrupt that that biochemical pathway, the pathological pathway that that you care about? And so at that point, you could test a whole range of of different compounds in the lab, which is what people do now to see whether they do correctly intervene in the process that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. But another way would be to to do what engineers do, which is to have an idea, you know, think of of an engine or an aeroplane or whatever, and then and then use computers, use uh, rational design principles to to design that machine to to function in the way that you want it to. And so that would be, I imagine, the way these things would be deployed is that you still need the biochemists to understand the the, the complicated pathways that are involved in whatever the problem is, whether it's uh, whether it's catalyst design or whether it's uh, medical d- drug design. But then at some point, one would like to go away from wet bench tests of, uh, of, of hundreds or thousands or millions of compounds and ask a, 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 a computer, whether it's a digital computer or, or an analog quantum computer, to, to help you with that, uh, that, that process. So it would, be a, 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 it would fit into the workflow of that, of that community in, in a way that helps them to design and, and rationally select compounds more effectively. Right. So, I mean, now, you know, we sort of talk a bit more broadly as to sort of what the field is, but um, why don't we go now into some sort of more specific highlights about what you do? Um, you come from the theoretical side. So, I mean, I know you have a lot of projects. I mean, if you had to pick one or two to sort of say, well, these are the exciting ones and these are the ones that I want to point out, what would they be? Yeah. Okay. Well, as you said, I work on, on a lot of things. Um, uh, well, I'll tell you something that, that I've worked on very recently, but uh, that's been part of my, my career for since I started my PhD 15 years ago, um, which has been thinking about quantum dots. So quantum dots are, are microscopic uh, objects, sort of a, a micron across or smaller, which um, uh, they, they behave like artificial atoms. So an atom is a point-like object in space, and it has the quantum mechanics of atoms is, is, is relatively well understood. And they're certainly characterized in one sense by having a very uh, well understood energy level structure. That is, atoms uh, in everyday life have got, uh, got uh, a spectrum that's associated with the transitions between the states of the atoms. So if you think of sodium lamps, which are a bright yellow, that's because there's a very strong yellow color transition. And quantum dots are a bit like that. They're artificial atoms, they're engineered systems. They're much bigger than, than, uh, than uh, real atoms. And they're, they're built on top of, well, out of semiconductors. So you take a, a lump of semiconductor like silicon or gallium arsenide and mm-hmm. make it very pure. And, uh, and then with a variety of tricks, you build uh, structures on, on, that, uh, on that semiconductor uh, wafer that are at the scale of, of microns or smaller. And those, those tiny structures are also sort of point-like. They're, they're, they're not extended in all three d- dimensions. They're actually localized in all three dimensions. And so, so that object, uh, that, that microscopic object, has the, the same sort of behavior as real atoms in that it's got a well-defined set of, uh, of energy levels. Mm-hmm. And 
so with with the so then now you've got a, a whole toolbox that lets you engineer effectively atoms uh, with with all sorts of properties that that you might be interested in. Now it's sort of amazing and really surprised me when I when I learned about this years ago is that that those artificial atoms, even though they're inside what would often be considered to be incredibly dirty and complicated uh, semiconductor crystal structures, they still behave very much like like atoms. So the quantum mechanics inside quantum dots is the same quantum mechanics that's, that makes atoms do their thing. Um, mm -hmm. And, and it's, it's a very strong effect. You can't understand quantum dots without understanding quantum mechanics, even though they're, in a sense, the dirtiest sort of system that you can you can uh, hope to imagine in uh, in experimental. Uh, so, solid state physics is the study of of, of solids, and uh, there was a community of people who used to call it squalid state physics because the the complexities of the of the structures and and crystal lattice and impurities was were enough to make uh, make it a very difficult problem to solve. But, but nevertheless, people have built these things, and so I'm, I'm very interested in, in what, what you can do with those. And uh, so some, some people I've worked with for a number of years in the United States have, have recently uh, uh, demonstrated some really nice results in that, that system. So taking quantum dots coupled to um, microwave resonators, which are basically just like guitar string in a sense. There is an, <laughs> there are, they, they have resonant frequencies that the quantum dot frequencies can interact with and they see all sorts of interesting things like um, uh, gain and, and population inversion and the, the kinds of things that people have um, have observed in atoms for many many decades are now starting to be observed uh, in in these quantum dot systems so understanding how uh, those things work in spite of and because of their interaction with their their environment the environment of the crystal lattice and the impurities in the lattice and so on is I think a fascinating uh, problem just scientifically um, and there's hope you know as we said before there's, there's hope that there might be some applications of that for example with new microwave sources and so on so what's the what's the motivation you say these these quantum dots act as basically artificial atoms uh, but they're also noisy and the, the, the systems are unclean and impure so why would you build such a thing when we already have atoms uh, well atoms are given to us by the universe. There's not much we can do with them, um, and so, uh, so on the one hand, atoms are, 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 are almost the platonic ideal. Every single uh, calcium atom is the same as every other calcium atom, except for the fact that uh, they might not have uh, desirable frequencies that uh, transition frequencies. They might be very hard to trap. I mean, atoms. It's taken many decades for people to learn how to manipulate single atoms uh, and, and hold on to them, um, let alone mm -hmm. uh, do anything sophisticated with the, the internal structure of the atom. So, so atoms are, are great um, and, and they have their own set of problems. Uh, but the, if you think about the, the, the digital computer revolution that we've, we've enjoyed over also many decades, uh, that, that's relied on the fact that we've been able to make uh, nonlinear electronic devices like, uh, like transistors in um, in silicon and in other semiconductors as well. So there's a huge infrastructure in place for uh, for building outrageously useful devices in in semiconductor materials. And so if you can take advantage of that fact and and all that uh, that huge amount of investment and expertise that that people have developed um, 
in in semiconductor technology uh, there's i think great hope that you can do something useful in in the quantum space so maybe you can build quantum computers out of quantum dots that's been a long-standing proposal maybe you can use them for quantum simulators but also maybe you can use them for these sort of um, micro maser single single artificial atom maser uh, systems and and I don't know. I'm not sure where it's going to go, but I, I think they're, they're great. And uh, well, I think that's the whole idea with fundamental research is you're not too sure, but it sounds exciting. I think so. Yeah, but but in, in short, the, the answer is that you can engineer them. You can you can build uh, build them to to spec, so to speak. Whereas atoms, right. we've got oh, about a hundred. We've got about 112 different different uh, types of atoms that we know about, and and. Uh, a few isotopes of each of them, but uh, that's it. There's no more atoms that we can we can uh, find. Well, at least aren't ones that are highly radioactive. Indeed, indeed. So, I mean, in Australia, we, we've basically got the two main centres. We've got EQUIS, which is, which is who you work for, and we've got the Centre for Quantum Computing and Communications Technology. Um, mm -hmm. You both fundamentally work on quantum mechanics, and you both fundamentally work on quantum technology, um, but your mandates are somewhat different. Uh, Obviously, with CQC2T, they're focused very much on quantum commuting and communications. Uh, mm -hmm. But in terms of sort of cross collaborations and sort of, you know, where the technologies meet in the middle, um, how does that work? I mean, is there is there much crossover between the two systems and between the two centres and the two sets of technologies that are being worked on? Um, certainly. So, so people in both there are people who are in both centres, uh, and there are people who share different research grants with with uh, across the centers um so so on the ground there is plenty of uh, of collaboration between uh, different people in in each of the centers um again i mean i guess that the the distinction between the two saying saying that we both work on on quantum mechanics is is uh, a bit like saying that there's two different uh, research groups who do mechanical engineering or something you know there's there's <laughs> it's a mechanics quantum mechanics is an incredibly broad area and there's there's yeah. certainly room for a, a great many people working on it. Um, the the UK over the last few years has uh, been ramping up spending in in quantum technologies. And uh, I don't know if you saw China's uh, planning to or have just deployed a satellite, a, a quantum communication satellite. So there's yeah, there's I saw that. There's a lot of interest in in the space, and so. Um, and I think this is one of the, the great things about Australian science, in fact, is that though compared to the big centres in Europe and North America and, and, uh, and Asia, I think in this particular space we've, we've uh, invested uh, from, from the start, we've had some of the, the earliest uh, results in, in quantum information and quantum technologies really did come out of Australia. And, um, and, and that was part of a... A, a very close-knit international community and so I think Australia is well positioned to uh, exploit our um, historical legacy that that a few people uh, began here um, in the in the 80s and 90s um, and again our, our focus is different so so quantum computing is a it, it's a very spe specific objective there and and objective uh, when when in our centre, the Engineered Quantum Systems Centre, I guess the the objectives are more diffuse, um, but but nevertheless, I guess we 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 still see that there's lots and lots of avenues that haven't been pursued that we we all need to explore. And I think that having both 
growth centers is is for the better it makes the makes the research environment here richer and, uh, and there's, there's there is a lot of overlap and, and so lots of collaborations going on on the ground between uh, between professors in both centres, all the way down to, to between uh, PhD students in in each of the centres. So I mean, this this rolls on nicely to sort of the the, the third the, the last third of a discussion that I usually do on these podcasts is, is sort of where the field is and where you see the field going. Now you you've been involved in quantum technology and quantum computing now for, for longer than I have. Um, so you've seen how this has evolved from sort of the late 90s, early 2000s, all the way through till now. Um, certainly when it comes to the investment from the, the quantum hubs in the UK, whether it's this uh, um, earmarked 1 billion euro investment from the European Union, the Chinese satellite, Google, IBM. Um, give us a bit of a run through sort of your opinion as to sort of how this evolved from really what seemed to be a very purely academic endeavour to now something that has really started to explode into the private sector and, and certainly quantum computing. You, you don't have to wait too many days before you see some other, some new headline in the paper uh, about uh, what quantum technology is, is, is doing worldwide. Yeah, I guess there's, there's, there's lots of answers to that, that question, but like in, in, a, in any area of a technological area that, that, um, that turns into a big industry, Really, that there had had to be a, a, a killer app, so to speak. There had to be a killer reason mm -hmm. for why that that uh, academic discipline turned into something bigger. So, if you look back in history, uh, engines, which were you know were invented in the industrial revolution, they were the, the heart of the industrial re revolution. They started off as as things that uh, that backyard scientists were tinkering with, uh, or mm -hmm. aristocratic scientists probably were were tinkering with, and and of course they proved to be Incredibly useful. They also they also uh, were the basis for what are quite esoteric areas of physics like thermodynamics and statistical mechanics. So, so that that industry took off because there were were huge applications of of the engine. We don't need to go into those because it's it's self evident just looking around us where where internal combustion engines have have taken our um, society. Things like the laser. You know, it was when it was invented as a as an idea. Uh, the applications were were relatively um, unknown, and I'm trying to remember what the uh, I can't remember now. But there's some the the, the, the business model that uh, that people started thinking about for why you might need lasers was was incredibly limited, um, and so but but now lasers are ubiquitous. So what you need really is is one key area where you think that 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 device or that that idea is going to to uh, play a, a role. Digital computers, you know, the, the applications for them were in the military, calculating ballistic trajectories and 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 breaking uh, codes. Mm -hmm. So, so the the reason that that those technologies took off was was largely because of very specific uh, um, applications that people identified that the, the the idea would be useful for. And so, in the case of quantum technologies, I guess it's what I've what I've already described. Uh, so. LIGO, the laser interferometer that uh, discovered gravity waves, in a sense, uh, kicked off a lot of the, the thinking about uh, quantum metrology in the 1980s. Um, and, and so that, that was probably one of the first places that people started to, to appreciate that you could exploit quantum mechanics uh, for, to, to make measurements better. And then over, over the next few years after the, the initial uh, papers on 
on quantum metrology came out, people were thinking along the lines of um, whether you can build, you can generalize com computation. And so can you, can you build a, a quantum computer? And it was, I guess, in the mid-90s when, uh, when there were a few specific uh, algorithms that were proposed, Shaw's algorithm most famously, in which it was, it was demonstrably the case that a quantum computer would outperform the best-known classical computer at, at solving a specific problem, in that case, factoring. And it turns out factoring, as I'm sure you've, you've discussed on your, on your podcast, factoring is a, a key application in, in, in a very specific area of industry. And in particular, it's uh, important for internet encryption. So, um, mm -hmm. so there's, a, there's a group of people that uh, perhaps want to uh, break internet encryption and, uh, and they, those people have quite a lot of money to spend. And so, so that, in a sense, I think drove historically the, um, the desire by some segment of, of industry to have a quantum computer. Now, I think people in industry can see that, uh, that there is at least one application or there, there are a few applications where a quantum computer will be, be useful. And, and just on the basis of, of historical sort of uh, comparisons, as I sort of described before, once a thing starts taking off, all sorts of clever people start thinking about it in different ways and come up with different yeah. uh, different uses for it. So the laser is now used in, in uh, well, probably less so now, but, you know, for a long time it was used in CD players and DVD players, although they're probably going out of fashion a bit. But laser technologies in, uh, in, 3D, in 3D point cloud mapping for autonomous vehicles are, are going to be a huge market and so on. So, so the point is that a thing like a laser, which started off with a very limited set of, of, uh, of tasks that people thought it would be good at, it's now ubiquitous, and I think that that's that's where quantum computing is, and, and quantum technologies broadly. There are there are known areas where where they'll be useful, and we just need to build them now. And it's a good guess that uh, people, clever people, will come up with new things to do with them that are we haven't even thought of yet. Yeah, I think that the general consensus of people I've been speaking to has been: look, we get the technology in the hands of people that, frankly, are smarter than us. Um, and they'll come up with a whole bunch of things. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I guess that, that's that's uh, where one should be a student of history, and you know, it's it's not so much people being s smarter. It's just that at the moment, we the, the problems we have to solve to build a quantum computer are so overwhelming in a sense that that smart people who are interested in it should be should be thinking about those those problems. That's what we need to do now. Once we've solved those problems, which we will, uh, then then you, then those those. Those same smart people or their, you know, their their uh, intellectual descendants can can put their their thinking caps on and, and start uh, trying to broaden the scope of what uh, what what the technology is capable of doing. And I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm confident just on the basis of history, uh, without necessarily having any evidence in in favour of that. No, I think the historical lesson is 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 a good motivation to believe that this is going to happen again. Um, I mean, I guess the, the, there is a there is a, a fundamental physics question as well, which I think is is just as powerful for physicists at least, which is that quantum computers in particular, um, but but more broadly engineered quantum systems, in a sense represent an entirely new state of matter that that to our knowledge hasn't existed in the universe uh, before. That is like a, a system that that can be made arbitrarily big and still retain all the quantum mechanical uh, coherence that, uh, mm -hmm. that is at the heart of, say, atoms. So 
so that's that's the thing that doesn't exist in the universe now that we know of um and 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 doing that is really answering the you know that it's the mount everest question why why try well because because we can you know um because it's there and, and because we can so i think there's a, a sort of cultural reason to think that that building an entirely new kind of material um that is a quantum computer is is uh, it's worth doing for its own own reasons yeah no no, no i completely agree um, now, there was one thing I wanted to bring up, and uh, we can choose to discuss it or not, it's up to you. Um, you. You sort of alluded to it uh, a few minutes ago when you were talking about autonomous vehicles. Um, now, correct me if I'm wrong, you wrote a, an article for, was it Forbes? Oh, it was the Australian Financial Review. Australian Financial Review, about, about yep. because this seems uh, to be a little bit of a, a pet project or a pet hobby of yours, something you're certainly interested in. Um, yep. Did you want to talk about sort of your perspectives on this at all? Um, Sure, very briefly. Uh, uh, I mean, I have a few sideline projects and that's one of the, the great things about um, being a scientist is that one can follow one's nose. And uh, and so I'm pretty convinced that, and I'm, I'm not Robinson Crusoe here, that uh, that autonomous vehicles are going to change the way cities work um, for the better. And, um, and so I have some interest in that. And I guess I, I've got a research in, involvement, which is in, in LiDAR developing new uh, techniques for um for imaging with with um, laser ranging and and uh, velocimetry and so um that's that's something that i've got got going on right now um and uh, quite excited about it uh there's some big players in the field so um it's a bit daunting but um yeah maybe we can come up with something good well hopefully um, so, I mean, we're, we're getting close now to the to sort of the 45-minute cutoff that I usually do these things for. So, uh, we'll go with the, the standard last question that I ask people is if, if I try to pin you to a prediction uh, with these systems, whether it's quantum computing or just the, the, the more broader uh, idea of an engineered quantum system, I mean, what would you think is, is, is a reasonable prediction of what could be around in, in five or ten years in terms of uh, what the general public would see? What will the general public see in five or ten years? Um, I suspect. Well, so I thought you were going to ask the question of when will we see, say, a quantum computer, which a lot of people ask, and and the short answer mm -hmm. to that question um, is we've already got them, so they exist already. So when will we see them? Well, we've already seen them, um, and then they say, "Oh, yeah, but I mean something useful." And so, so that's <laughs> more along the lines of of uh, your question is when when will we not when will we see something useful, you're asking what, what will be useful around in five or ten years. And and really, I, I just don't know the ans answer to that, that question. I suspect that um, we'll have quantum computers that are capable of, of uh, doing things that classical computers can't do now, mm -hmm. albeit that problem is simulating a quantum computer. So, so that's not a necessarily a useful thing, it's just a demonstration of, of a device which goes beyond uh, classical uh, capabilities. Um, I suspect that we'll have uh, de deployed uh, uh, quantum cryptography networks. I mean, there are a few that exist now in, in sort of um, in uh, de demo um, in a demonstration setting. But I suspect that there'll mm -hmm. be some areas where uh, there are deployed quantum um, communication uh, protocols for. For, for real purposes, so maybe interbank communications or intergovernmental communications. Um, right. 
And we might just start seeing the first uh, quantum simulators being built. Um, in terms of things like quantum metrology, we already have uh, measurements now. So one of my colleagues here at UQ, Warwick Bowen, has uh, measurements using um, squeeze light where uh, he, he sees in, in a bio, um, biophysics experiment, he's looking at uh, a small um, uh, in, intracellular uh, Bit of stuff, so he looks at looks at uh, at cells, and they've they've got organelles and so on, and so you can look at how a, a particle within a cell, a living cell, behaves, and um, he uses squeeze light, which is the the sort of light that people are talking about putting into LIGO, the interferometer, to measure the the motion of of particles within a, a single cell um, with lower noise than you can do otherwise. And, and the point there is that with lower noise, you can measure things on shorter timescales. So, so they're already seeing uh, phenomena in biological systems that uh, the claim would be that you can't observe without that technology. So, so that's, that's been demonstrated in a research paper and, and so one can imagine that, that that will be deployed more widely. That is quantum assisted um, biological measurements. Where, where you use the properties of quantum light to, to, measure, uh, to measure properties of biological systems with, with lower noise and with higher bandwidth. Okay, so I think, I think we've got a bit of a rock-solid prediction there that something related to biosensing um, might be around the corner. Indeed, yeah. Okay, so we'll close this off. Um, generally, I like for everyone who comes on, if, if there's anything interesting happening at Equus or UQ or anything you want to plug, it's um, coming up shortly. Uh, well, so so we're all on tenterhooks because we're waiting for the outcome of the second uh, of the of the refunding round. So we've we've asked, so Equus will run out at the end of next year, and we've we're we shortly will find out whether we have uh, been extended or not. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and so I think well, it's very exciting. There's never been a more exciting time to be a quantum physicist in Australia, uh, and we'll we'll. Um, you might uh, hear cheers or you might hear uh, people crying from this part of the world in, in <laughs> literally a few days or a week. Um, uh, anything else to, to plug? No, but, uh, but people are coming to visit, come by and uh, you know, we're Australians, Australia's a long way from everywhere. And so whenever people are in, in the country, we, we encourage them to come by uh, the, the nodes of our centre and, and visit and, and see what we're up to and, and let us know what they're up to. So open invitation for, for people to come and, and uh, check us out. Well, I think that's a good note to leave on. Uh, so as, as with usual things, I'll put all the links to, to Tom's webpage and Twitter accounts and all, all, all the kind of things you would need if you want to get in contact with him or, or anyone else from, uh, from UQ or, uh, or Equus. Um, but no, I think that's a, it's a good note to leave on and uh, Tom, thanks a lot for giving me an hour of your time. Thanks Simon, it's great talking. Cheers. Talk so thanks you. again everyone for, uh, for joining in today. Uh, this will obviously be uploaded uh, to iTunes and uh, SoundCloud very, very shortly. Um, we'd like to say that we're now on uh, Google Play's uh, podcast uh, network as well as iTunes. Uh, so the link is in our Twitter feed. And obviously, just search uh, up for Mephonics on, on Google Play, and you should be able to download us there too. Uh, so our next episode should hopefully be sometime in the next week or so, uh, possibly either with Andrea Morello from 
the University of New South Wales in Sydney, or Andrew Cross from IBM Research uh, in the US. Uh, who comes first, we're not sure yet. We have to confirm sometimes. But uh, again, check out our YouTube channel and all our social media accounts for any updates. So thanks again. Cheers, everyone.